Parenting is the act of making very simple things incredibly complicated. <laughs> Parenting is the act of making very simple things incredibly complicated. Let me give you a couple examples. Something like going to bed. You're thinking, if I wanted to go to bed right now, I would just like, a lot of you are thinking about that, right? I just love to go to bed right now. That's because you're a parent. And before you have kids and you think, I'm going to go to bed, you say, should I go to bed? You say, yes, I'd like to go to bed. You go to your bed, you take off your clothes, and you go to sleep. When you're a parent, going to bed is not that simple. In fact, it is a whole process that can often take an hour. It involves bath time and fights within the bath, like who gets the first shampoo, who gets shampooed at all. And then once the bath is settled, then we go to the jammies and what jammies are, are appropriate for the season. Like you shouldn't wear winter jammies in the middle of summer. Uh, who gets to read what stories and, uh, and where do, who sits on which side of dad. These are fights galore that happen in our house all the time, just under the umbrella of going to bed. Then there's who's going to say prayers, what do we pray for, uh, how do you, they want, kids want to extend the process, I want to shorten it as much as possible, and it's just an incredibly complicated process every single day. Sleeping seems really easy too, right? Just, you want to sleep, you go to sleep. My wife and I, we don't even know if we're going to sleep anymore, right? We used to kiss each other goodnight, now we kiss each other good luck. <laughs> because you never know what kind of, we have, you know, three kids and they're just wandering around at any point throughout the night. Right? There's just bodies walking by beds sometimes. We don't know if they're in our family or not. We're fine with it. <laughs> I do have three daughters of four, two, and three months. I can never remember their names, uh, but <laughs> I'm working on it. I used to remember their names, and we had our third one. Now I can't remember any of their names. Remembering names is a very simple thing that's incredibly complicated once you have children. Accounting, you would think, would be very simple, right? When, before I had kids, I used to count one, two, three. No problem. And then you have kids, and now there's fractions involved all the time, right? It's like uh, one, two, uh, two and a half, two and three quarters, uh, two and seven eighths, two and uh, 13 sixteenths. My four-year-old to correct me. Actually, Dad, it's two and 13, uh, sorry, two and 13 15 sixteenths would be the right fraction next. And I'm like, okay, you know, I used to be able to count, but now we got fractions involved. I can't do this. Uh, leaving the house was very easy, right? We just like, I'd look at my wife, like, would you like to leave the house? She'd say, yes, let's leave the house. We'd go and we'd put on our shoes, we'd put on our coats, and we'd leave the house. But now again, like, are the kids fed? Have they gone to the bathroom? Do they have the appropriate clothing on? Do they have their shoes on? Do they have their shoes on the right feet? Have they taken their shoes off while we were putting the other kids' shoes on? And now do they want to go to the car? Do they want to take the secret route? Now we're missing a child. Now we're going to call the police to report a missing child in Abbotsford. Oh, now we found them. Okay, now let's get them all in together, get them in their, uh, buckled in their seats, and now let's go. Incredibly complicated, which should be so simple. Going to church is another one of those things. When you, you think you're just like, you're in one place and the church is right there, it's starting at this time, we should just go there. But it's become incredibly complicated and very tempting to make it as simple as just saying, you know what, let's just skip today. Let's just call this one off. And as, as tempting as that may be, I want to encourage you today that that is not the best choice. We're going to be encouraged by a story uh, this morning of a guy who actually his turning point happened when he was in church. He found peace. He found joy again. He found perspective. I was getting my daughter ready for church uh, just a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were, you know, it's a stressful time for a dad, right? Because it's like, not only do I have to get the kid with clothes on, but I have to pass the mom test, right? Will this pass to go to church? 
And my daughter, we, we put a dress on. I thought it was good enough. And she looked at me and she goes, Daddy, how come my dresses aren't as nice as the other girls in Sunday school? And I did the Ezra look, right? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this one. But I kissed my sweet four-year-old on the forehead and I said, Abigail, I do not know the answer to that, but this I do know, that that's a great introduction to Psalm 73 for when Daddy has to preach. <laughs> so would you turn in your Bible to Psalm 73? Because I think there's something for us and my four-year-old in here this morning. It's a story of a guy named Asaph. That's the first uh, words in my Bible, is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph actually wrote several of the psalms, uh, 12 of them. He's not in the Bible Hall of Faith. We don't talk about him a lot. But he was a worship leader uh, during the time of David. So he saw great success during the, the thriving times of Israel. But he also saw some of the decline in the times of Solomon. So he was there, kind of the overlap between David, one of the greatest kings, and Solomon, which is one of the downfalls of the kings. Uh, so it was interesting that he kind of saw both. He saw great times, he saw low times, and we have his testimony in here. So it's a good old-fashioned, this, this is what I used to be like, and then this is what uh, happened. So let's read it together. I'm going to read the first half. We're going to look at what's Asaph's problem. Then we're going to read the second half. We're going to look at what was his solution. So verse 1 of Psalm 73 says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. And from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? And this is what they're like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. We'll pause there. Asaph was a good Sunday school kid, you know, a good church leader. He knew the answers to the questions. Someone would ask the question, is God the God of Israel? Is he good? He'd say, yes, of course he's good, all the time. God is always good. However... He had a crisis in his heart when he stopped thinking about what's the right answer and started looking around and saying, does this match my experience? And doubts crept in when he started to look around and say, well, you know, God seems to be good to me, but, you know, he's actually better to a lot of other people. In fact, he's better to people that want nothing to do with God. Asaph got caught up in what we would call the comparison trap. The comparison trap is when you lose your contentment because you're so fixated on what someone else has or what God has given them when he hasn't given them to you. Asaph had all of his needs from the good heavenly father, and yet he lost the contentment that the heavenly father wanted him to experience and enjoying those gifts, and he was focusing on, well, why can't I have what he has or why can't I have what they have, especially when their hearts seem to be so far from God. What was Asaph's problem? He had no contentment, caught up in the comparison trap. We see in verse 2, he says, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I lost my, nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph's problem st starts when he stops looking to God and he starts looking around at other people. And that's the crisis that I felt that Sunday morning when I was trying to dress 
uh, my daughter for church. I kind of paused, had this existential moment when I thought, what are we going to do about this? This is clearly a teaching time that we've got to get early in her life. Because it's about a dress right now, but if, this, if we don't deal with this soon, this is going to be a problem that's going to plague her for the rest of her life. You see, that day it was about dresses, but soon it'll be Christmas time, and she'll get presents from mom and dad, maybe. She corrects her behavior. She'll get presents from aunts and uncles, grandparents, and she'll want to talk with friends and cousins about what she got. And then all of a sudden, if she starts to realize that other people are getting more presents or bigger presents, something's going to happen inside of her where all of a sudden those presents that she used to be so happy about all of a sudden don't seem like enough. And it's not just about dresses and Christmas presents. One day she's going to be going to school. Not only will it be about what school she's going to, is she going to a school like the other kids? But what grades is she getting at that school? And are they as good as others? And then there'll be some competition between her friends. And good friendships may be in jeopardy. It may be broken because of something like a letter grade that someone gives her. And it's not just about grades. It's also about sports. Some people might have more athletic talent. If she's anything like her dad, there will be many people with better athletic talent. And other people with more opportunities. And even parents who are willing to put more money into her friend's uh, athletic opportunities than than I'd be willing to do. And what's going to happen is that she's going to say, Dad, why did they get all these more opportunities? Why did God give them so much more natural talent? What about me? And all of a sudden, she's not going to enjoy something as simple as just playing a sport, a sport that we're supposed to play for fun. And it all of a sudden will become something far more than just, hey, let's sign you up so that you can have some time to play some sports for recreation. And it won't just be about that. Maybe one day she'll get a job and she'll earn some money. Hopefully she'll get a job and earn some money. But she might look around at other people who have different jobs and are making more money. She'll think, why why do they get so much more money? And she'll pray about it. She'll pray, God, I want some more money, like those people. And all of a sudden, she won't enjoy her job anymore. She won't be satisfied with the amount that she gets paid. She might want to drive a car one day. And a car is just a simple thing, right? It's like, I could walk, or I could take a bike, or I could take a horse, but a car is actually better. It's going to get me there faster. So all it has to do is burn these fossil fuels, and it's going to, like, it's amazing. You ever driven in your car and be like, I can't believe what's happening beside and around me. It'll freak you out, actually. You think there's little tiny explosions happening that's getting you to work or wherever it is that you're going. But that's really what's happening, and it's quite amazing. The car is an amazing feat. But then all of a sudden, she might be driving a blue car and see a red car beside her at a, at a stoplight, and she'd be like, actually, I want a red car instead. Or maybe the car's a little faster or a little newer or something. But it's no longer about, I need to go from this place to this place, and I want to get there faster than taking a horse. And it's going to be about, I want to be seen in this car, or I want the status that comes with, with driving in this vehicle. <laughs> what a silly thing, right? Hypothetically speaking, that could happen. But it might not be just about Christmas or school or sports or money or the car. It could be about relationships, too. You see, at the age of 30, she might want to date a boy. (laughs) And I'm going to have to be okay with that as her dad. But she might want to date. And what could interfere with the joy of experiencing dating is her dad and... (laughs) the fact that other people are further ahead in their relationships, right? She might be starting a relationship. She wants to be further in a relationship. Those people seem a little happier. But then when she gets further in the relationship, she might say, well, why can't I be engaged? Because other people seem to be all excited about their engagements. And so she'd be like, I I can't enjoy this because we're not engaged. 
And if she's engaged, maybe she'll want to be married, waiting for the wedding day. I wish I could be married like all those other people. And then all of a sudden they're married, and she's like, well, other couples seem to have kids, and people talk about kids, I want to have kids. So why can't we have kids? But then they have kids, and they want to have more kids, or want to have cuter kids, like the ones they see on Instagram and stuff, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden there's that discontentment. Then once they have the kids, and then they want the kids to leave, right? And they see other families who have the kids leaving, and they're like, oh man, all that time again, all that peace, wouldn't that be amazing to, to be free from these kids? And they're like, oh, I wish I could just have my kids gone. But then the kids are gone, and they think, well, now I want to retire. Right? Or I want to go on a vacation. Then she goes on a vacation, and it's like, well, we were on a lake here. But she sees people on, the, on a boat on the lake. I wish I wasn't here stuck on the shore. I'd like to be on the boat. So she gets a boat, and the people on the boat are saying, I wish I could own a property on the boat so we don't have to haul it to the dock every single time. I'd like to own the property. Wouldn't that be nice? If, and then she'd invite her dad, maybe, and her mom and stuff. We can, we can invite you guys. Hey, wouldn't that be great? Why not? And then, of course, one day it'll be time to retire, and she'll see other people wanting to retire. She's like, oh, I wish I could just get free from this, the shackles of this job. I want to retire. And she'll retire, and, and then one day uh, she'll see her friends dying, and she'll be like, oh, wouldn't that be so nice just to have a rest and be, get to die? <laughs> you see why it took me so long to answer her when we were putting that dress on <laughs> for church. This is what happens when we get caught in the comparison trap. We lose the joys of the every day that God has for us, and we can end up wishing our entire lives away. You know, it's, it's about this four-year-old, but I think it's also about all of us. I think all, we can all identify a little bit with the idea that it's so easy to start looking around at the things that God has given other people and start to wonder, well, why not me? Why can't I have something of what they have? And as a result, we completely lose our contentment. This is the life principle for you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. You can agree that comparison kills contentment. Comparison kills contentment. That's what happened to Asaph. He became jealous of what we would call uh, God's common grace. God's common grace is, is a term that theologians use to describe that the sun is, is warm to both a uh, follower of Jesus and person who's of not following Jesus, God's friends and God's enemy. They both experience the joys of a warm sun or a refreshing glass of water. And God, who is a good father, gives, gives gifts to all people, things like musical talent and opportunities in business. And some people have better health than others or more opportunities uh, socially, better personalities, just all kinds of different things. We are so diverse. And God, who is good and loves all people, gives these gifts, these gifts of God's grace to all people in the hopes that they would come to him and turn to him. But some people don't. And we learn about their characteristics from uh, this psalm. Uh, Asaph describes some of their characteristics from verse 4 to 12. Things like they are proud, they are vain, they are slanderous to God, they boast, they mock, they take credit for all the gifts that God has given them. So they're totally wrong. Even like they, some of them are shaking their fists and Asaph's kind of watching, saying, okay, let's going to see. Are they going to get hit by some lightning? Uh, is God going to smite them right on the spot? What's going to happen? Well, their business grows. They get better vacations. They seem to thrive. What is going on here? God, what about me? I'm trying to do my best for you. And, and all these other people who hate you, slander you, mock you openly. They seem to get all the success. Look at verse 11. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. 
Asaph's problem, he got caught in the contentment, uh, sorry, he had no contentment, caught up in the comparison trap. And those of us who were raised in church or uh, have been following Jesus for a while, you'd, you'd be sh- shocked. Like, I mean, you, this should give us chills. Verse 13, he says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph's interpretation of his life is that he has lived this blameless and pure life. And as a result, he has not gotten the reward that he believes he deserves. Now, if you're God and you're, you're reading this, I mean, it's the Bible, so I'm sure God was reading it, inspiring it, no doubt. But it's Asaph's testimony, and he's looking at in the heart of, of his struggling follower here, and he's like, really? Is that why you were doing all that? You see, I remember when you were pouring your heart out to me in worship, saying, God, I will do anything for you. I will go anywhere. You call me, I will go. You lay any burden, I will take it. Is, were you really doing it for me? Or were you just trying to get more stuff from me? Like, I, I thought when you said that you would worship me just for who I am. I didn't realize that you were actually saying, as long as I give you what you want, the kind of life that you think you ought to live, the kind of gifts you think you deserve. You see, I read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, I see nothing about if you honor God, then he will give you everything that you want. In fact, sometimes it's quite the opposite. If you try to live a life that honor God, you are willing to submit to anything that he puts in your path. You give him the pen to your life and give them an open canvas, he's going to write some things that are painful. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The promise is right there that we will have trouble. And the promise of Christianity is not that God will give you a charmed life and answer every single prayer that you want, give you everything you, you feel like you, you need. The, the promise of Christianity is that God will give you himself, that Jesus will be closer than a friend or a brother. The Holy Spirit will be there no matter what you're going through, and that you have this great future in heaven where there is no more tears, no more pain, but in this world you will have trouble still. Asaph didn't get that. He says, in vain have I been pure. In vain have I been a good church kid. In vain have I tried to do what's right. But he's wrong. Thankfully, there's more to this story. Let's look at Asaph's solution. He needed a change in perspective. And my friends, perspective makes all the difference. Some of you are sending your, your kids that you've raised so well to university, off to the these Canadian universities, American universities, wherever it is, and I, I get that there's probably a ton of fear that goes into that. Um, and this is not going to help. <laughs> After sending his uh, daughter to university, he got this letter back a few months later. It says, Dear Dad, I'm sorry it's taken so long to write. So much has been going on. I have a lot to tell you. I hope you're sitting down as you read this. I want you to know, Dad, that I'm healing nicely after my fall. I broke my hip after jumping out of my dorm room when it was on fire. Thankfully, the gasoline attendant working across the street drove me to the hospital, and he stayed with me there. Oh, Dad, he was so sweet and romantic, I started dating him right away. (laughs) To save money on rent, I moved in with him. He doesn't have a lot of money now, but he works really hard, and he has some big dreams of his band making it big one day. I look forward to him meeting the family uh, once the baby arrives. We want to do our young family right, Dad, and so we will be getting married in the summer. 
I'm sure you will show him the same love and tolerance that you and mom always taught me to show others, as you probably should know he's of another religion. There's one more thing, Dad, that I needed to tell you. There was no fire, no hospital, no gas attendant, no baby, and no wedding. But it looks like I'm going to fail biology this term, and I thought you should probably use some perspective. Perspective is seeing something from a different angle, realizing there's another way to interpret it. Asaph in verse 16, this is where he gets his change in perspective. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. And troubling it is. When we're caught in the comparison trap, we're trying to make sense of it all, we, we just don't have the big picture. But at church, Asaph got the bigger picture. Look what he says. It troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, everything changed. What happened when he came to church that day? He got the truth. He got the truth. See, all week long, as he was looking around, comparing himself and his situation with other people's situation, he was caught up envying all of them, and he couldn't see the bigger picture that God saw the whole time. See, when we come to church, we understand a few things that are true, that there is a God that he is real and he cares about every person. And he loves us so much, he gives, you know, he lets people thrive and he does it so that they would come to see that he is worth following, that they would thank him for the gifts. He gives them air to breathe and he gives them food to eat, hoping that they would say thank you for giving this gift. But the problem is none of us thank God as we ought. None of us love him in return as he deserves. And this sin separates us from, from God. And he loves us so much that he pursued us to send his son, Jesus, so that we wouldn't have to pay the price for our sin and that we could actually accept that relationship that we were intended when, when God made us. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to walk with us and teach us to be the kind of people, to have the kind of joy and contentment and love for both God and others and this world that we are, that we are supposed to as people who uh, love God. But the problem is that many people don't do that. And God waits and God waits for that they would turn. But then there's a day when God waits no more, and there's a day of judgment that comes. I played hockey for many years, and it's kind of good therapy for me to tell a hockey story every once in a while just to remember what I used to be like before I was, my life was about changing diapers and just, you know, kids. It's actually a lovely break, by the way. Isn't this nice? You know, we can just sit in the quiet here for a little bit together. No kids around. Anyways, I'm enjoying it a lot. <laughs> I played for a team called the South Surrey Eagles in the BCHL, and we had this age-old rivalry with this team, these evil villains called the Chilliwack Chiefs. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Awful people, terrible people. <laughs> but anyways, we had this rivalry, and we would do funny things to them, and they would do funny things uh, to us, and they would do mean things to, to us, and we never did anything mean to them. I remember one game, their, their goalie, who will go unnamed, I'm sure he's a very nice person now, this is like 18 years ago, so you know, I, I remember these things. Uh, their goalie actually hit somebody, one of our players, and I, I know I, I, was a, I was a goalie as well, I was quite offended, and was upset, you know, how could they get away with this? And so the first thing I did, like many of people on my team, was look to the referee. And when we looked to the referee, all of a sudden we were like, oh, okay, it's going to be all right. Do you know why we knew that? Because when we looked to the referee, all of a sudden the referee had his hand up. And what that signaled to us was that while the game continued to go on and other people could enjoy the game of hockey, the referee had seen an injustice that happened, a breaking of the laws of hockey, 
and he put his hand up to say a penalty is coming. It's not coming yet. We got to wait till the other team touches the puck, but a penalty surely is coming. And so we all relieved because we knew that we didn't actually have to take matters into our own hands. We could just relax and let the referee officiate the game. Now, the interesting thing about hockey, the reason why I think this is God's sport, is that when a goalie takes a penalty, you don't ever see the goalie go and actually sit in the penalty box himself. What happens? Someone who is innocent, who never actually hit the other player, who never did the the infraction, the slash, steps in for the goalie and takes his place serving the penalty for, uh, for the goalie. And this is what Christianity is like. You see, God, the judge of the world, has his hand up. He sees all the injustice. He sees all the unrighteousness. He sees people mocking him and taking credit for the gifts that he's given them, ignoring him, breathing all his air and not thanking him. And God, the judge, puts his hand up and says, there's a penalty coming. There's a judgment coming, but I'm going to wait so that if anybody wants, they can choose to have my son serve the penalty in their place for their sin so that they could stay in the game and have eternal life. And all those who missed hockey season said, amen. (laughs) Asaph realized the bigger picture, the perspective that comes with the truth when he came to church. And then all of a sudden there's this time of remorse that he enters into in verse 21. It says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. God, you created me to enjoy you, to enjoy the gifts you give, and I was just shaking my hands at you. I was upset. I lost days or weeks of my life, maybe even years. I was less than human before you. But what's God's response? It says, yes, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Oh, this is so encouraging for any of us who've been caught up in the comparison trap, who have spent days, weeks, months, years in envy, wishing our lives away. God has been there waiting for us to turn, to see the truth and to turn to him. See God's love for Asaph through this. See his care for him, his patience with his son here. See his plan for Asaph and see the same heart for you as well. When we see God's grace, he's like, you know what? Today's a new day. You can, you can start thanking me. You can see things differently. You can have a change in perspective. What's our response to God's grace? Well, Asaph responds with what we could say is, is, a, is worship here. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Oh, this is a changed person. We knew that before he was saying, I want all these things. And God, I don't even care if I have you. Like, I just want those things. And now he's saying, there's nothing that I see that I want more than you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Before Asaph was so busy wanting what other people had that he was envying them, he was in competition with other people, with who has more, and now his response is, I'm going to tell others about how good God is. This is a great testimony. It's great hope for all of us that there is a joy that maybe you haven't been experiencing. No matter what you're going through, there's the contentment that God wants to offer you. Maybe you've been missing it, ignoring it, because you've been so busy, caught up, chasing what other people have. But today's a new day. It was a new day for Asaph. What was Asaph's problem? He had no contentment, caught up in the comparison trap. What was his solution? He learned the truth with a change in perspective. 
just want to give you three quick things that you could take uh, today as you go to apply uh, what we learn in Psalm 73, Asaph's story to your own life. The first one is I want you to be aware of the comparison trap all around you. As we leave and we're bombarded on, by messages from our phones and stories of vacations from our neighbors or going back to school and seeing what all the new clothes that people are wearing, whatever it may be, there's opportunities to compare yourself to others and miss the joy and the contentment and the satisfaction that God wants to offer you by enjoying him and his gifts to you. Some of you are thinking, maybe I need to get rid of social media. Maybe you do. I know that the people who make these apps, their desire is to get us on them as much as possible, right? It's like, how can I get them on our, their phones more? But I don't think social media is the problem. Why? Because for 3,000 years, we've obviously been doing this. Like, this is an old story of a guy who didn't have Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and all that to compare himself and his life to. But for maybe some of you, it is a problem, and you need to say, you know what? I can see that my joy and my uh, satisfaction in God decreases and my anxiety and my envy increases every time I open my phone. So you can just stop opening your phone and just take time to reflect on a few of the things that God has given you instead. Instead of looking at what everyone else has, start pausing and saying, God, I want to thank you for the following things and just make a list of all the good gifts that God has given you. Because you already have that list of all the things he's not given you. He knows it well. You've prayed about it for years. Why don't focus on the things that you're, that you're, you're thankful for? Secondly, I want to encourage you to make church a priority. That was the turning point for Asaph, right, was when he went to church. What happens at a good church? Well, you're, you're reminded of what is true, but you can't be reminded unless you show up. And I get it. I know the complications. I know how difficult it is. I know on a Sunday morning, I mean, it's 9 o'clock. I'm preaching to the choir here on a summer. Like, God bless you guys. You are here to be reminded of the truth. I just know that as a husband, as a father, as a business person, as a follower of Jesus, I need that weekly reminder because I am bombarded with lies all week long. I need church, and I need to make it a priority for myself. But I know that other people need church as well, other people around me. And they know that they need to see me there because they're reminded, oh yeah, it is worth it if he's there, and if they're there, and if that person's there, if that family's there, and they're going through a crisis, I know I've heard about it, and they're still here in church. Church must be important. And that family, I know what they're going through. They must be, uh, you know, they need church as well. Church must be important. And that's why we all come together, to remind our, each other of the truth. We sing songs about what is true. We hear God's word open to the truth, and we're reminded afresh for that week that of, of who God is and what he has done for us and how we can follow him. I need that. It's something I, I want to value as a, as a family. See, I see a lot of families struggling to pass on their values these days. Now, a lot of values are, have no problem, right? I talked to some people and they're like, I was like, so what hockey team do you cheer for? Montreal Canadiens. I'm like, Montreal Canadiens? Out here in Vancouver, you cheer for the Canadiens? Why? Well, my dad always cheered for the Canadiens and you know, we're just like, it was Saturday nights, we're Hockey Night in Canada family, so we just watch it. And I'm like, and still, after all these years, you cheer for the Canadians? I say, you know, I would never do that, but I applaud your father for passing on the family values. And now I look and I say, well, what about faith? It's like, has, has your dad passed on family values to yourself? And it doesn't take long in the conversation, and we're all there. It's like, we're all struggling with this these days. I think we do pass on our values quite well. But here's the thing. When we, when we don't make church a priority, we may say that we value it, but if we put other things like our recreation or our comfort or our, the need to sleep in a little bit, when we put other things that, uh, you know, like maybe like a full moon or good weather or bad weather, we say, I can't go to church today. What are we saying to our kids? What's our value? 
We may like church, but if anything else comes up, then we value that more than we value hearing the truth this week. Man, that's convicting to me. My kids are young, so my storms are coming. But there's something I could encourage you from what happened with Asaph's life. It's make the priority to get to the sanctuary of God. I heard one, one pastor said, when, when, if, you don't, if you don't make church a priority in your family, you shoot yourself in the foot, you shoot your kids in the leg, and you shoot your grandkids in the heart. And I know many of us don't want to leave that kind of legacy. So make church a priority. And thirdly, keep your eyes on Jesus and his goodness to you. Keep your eyes on Jesus when you are threatened and, or feel that pressure to look at other things. When other people start talking about their vacations and their homes and their plans and what they want to do, their grades and their sports and everything, just find that place to say, you know, I need to be reminded of what is true, that my God is real and he is good and he has given me good gifts and I want to celebrate other people, like really celebrate, like actually feel happy for their achievements and the places they've gone and the adventures they've lived and actually be satisfied in what they're doing. It's like, that's amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? Actually be truly happy for another person because you are so satisfied in what God has given you. And that's the kind of person I want to be. How about you? We need to go to prayer in this. And, and I just want to, um, I want to encourage you about, about this story in John's gospel, right? You remember the, the story, Jeff's talked about it often, of, of when Peter is uh, he's being reinstated by Jesus. They're having breakfast together and Jesus says, you know, Peter, your death is not gonna, it's not gonna go well. It's gonna be a little ugly. And then he looks at points to this other disciple, what about John? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't you worry, worry about John. I got him. You, what's that to you? You come follow me. We're gonna pause for prayer, and I know that Jesus is gonna ask all of us, what's, what's that to you that you were so caught up this week or for your life and what, other, what others have? You come follow me. Let's pray together. And obey that call. Thank you, Jesus, for the reminder of truth. Thank you for the call that you have on all of us to, to just enjoy the gifts that you give as, as a good father. Forgive us for where we have wandered and gone our own way and envied others. Thank you for Asaph's example and now the example that you are calling us to live to others, to show that you are good, to believe you are good, and to focus our eyes on you no matter what. And I'm reminded of the song, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look full in your wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And we celebrate that glory and grace now as we turn to worship. It's in your name we pray, amen. <laughs>